This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. We all make fun of the horseback riding shirtless, but I'll tell you, that's an excellent example of how he's able to appeal to multiple voter demographics. He's appealing to uh, agrarian, uh, eco, pro-ecosystem uh, pro people. The Greens are actually have a pretty strong presence in Russia or people who have green political leanings or uh, inclinations because of the environmental damage wrought by Soviet industrialization. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Pacific Lutheran University. We're going to have a conversation today that may seem odd if you think about the origins of the show, but like, trust the process here. We're going to talk today about a concept called democratic erosion, and that's the process by which a democratic state drifts away from a functional democracy into more authoritarian behavior. And if you've been a longtime listener to this show, you know that twice we've talked about the book How Democracies Die. And that's an amazing book, and it's kind of self-explanatory in the title, talking about eroding democracies, including the United States. Uh, but the real origin of the show is a conversation I had in my classroom about a week ago. Uh, in my class, my comparative government class, we were having a discussion about our comparative states. And there's six states that we look at. I'm not going to name them right now because I'll forget one. That's fine. Uh, but in the end, basically, students decided that Russia had the best constitutional system on paper. So then we had a long conversation about the gap between what happens on paper and what happens on real life. And so my guest today is named Jeff Hahn. He's a doctoral candidate at the London School of Economics, and he's the author of a piece that I use in my classroom called Russia's Adaptive Authoritarianism. And I reached out to him for this conversation. He's going to help us with this. Uh, this is another one of our Nerd Farmer, sorry, Nerd Farmer Academy episodes of the show. And so this show is a conversation with an academic that is for everybody, but in particular classroom teachers out there. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nate. Happy to be here. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation. Uh, I wonder, your academic niche is uh, kind of unusual. How did you fall into this? Well, it's an interesting story. I'll try to keep it brief. But basically, I was originally interested in a diplomatic career. So I studied international relations. And in doing that, I was drawn to Russia. Uh, this started in about 2010. There was a lot of attention on China, a lot of attention on the Middle East. And in DC, there was kind of this perception of Russia as a spent force. And I was curious about that because. You know, I, I was a I was of the post-Cold War generation. I was actually born the year that the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, and as I learned more and more about Russia, I got more and more fascinated, in particular, about how we got from the heady days, uh, the heady days of 91, when it looked like the future was peace, happiness, and cooperation, to increasing animosity, suspicion, and fear on both sides. And uh, that's what drew me to this. And then I've had the opportunity to pursue my PhD at the School of London Economics. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been an absolute blast. But I'm also finding a lot of very fascinating stuff. Awesome. Um, I, I, I wonder, 
Why do you think it's important for normal people in the U.S. to know about or care about what's happening in Russia's system? I think it's important for normal people in the U.S. to have a good understanding of other nations and other places in the world and how those places perceive the United States. In the American media, I typically see a very neo-McCarthyite attitude when it comes to Russia. This image of the Russians as some sort of hulking, threatening force. What's interesting is when you do the when you flip it around and you look at it from the Russian perspective, they see the United States as a threat, as someone who's actively aggressive against them. Now, obviously, there's been mistakes and miscalculations and more blatant aggression and lack of respect of human rights on the Russian side. But I think if we have if we're better to if we're able to better understand each other, there would be less risk of confrontation. And one thing that increasingly bothers me about D.C. is it's become kind of fashionable to discuss what a, lim quote, limited conflict with Russia would look like in the future. And I have to keep reminding people that any conflict with Russia in the future will last exactly as long as it takes the ICBMs to find their targets. That's that is a line for a cocktail party for sure, man. Um, so here's the thing. I wasn't born when the Russian Revolution happened back in like 1918. I was in middle school when the Russian, sorry, when the Soviet Union collapsed uh, back in 1991. And like, I'm not going to ask you to recap 100 years of Russian history. But I wonder, could you walk us through kind of the history of governance in Russia and like how it has shifted from being more democratic into being more authoritarian and then from more authoritarian back to democratic and then back into more authoritarianism? Yeah, absolutely. So and I'll try to be brief with this. But what you've got to think about with Russia is so George Kennan, who was a great Russianologist for the United States at the end of the at the end of World War Two, he actually wrote a document called The Long Telegram which established a lot of the U.S. doctrine towards the Soviet Union at the time. What he said about Russia was, at the bottom of the Kremlin's neurotic worldview is a traditional instinct of insecurity, one of a peaceful agrarian people living on a vast plain surrounded by fierce nomads. So Russia, for most of its history, has been a nation that's been perpetually under siege with no natural frontiers or defensive. Its government began as a kind of a loose confederation of city-states, many of whom were quite democratic. But after the Mongol invasion in the 1200s, the surviving city-states that didn't pay homage or did need to pay homage increasingly became more authoritarian, modeling their government style uh, on their Mongol oppressors. And it was, it's really kind of considered Ivan the Fourth, Ivan, so called Ivan the Terrible or Ivan the Stormy, depending on the translation, who declared himself czar of all the Russias, who kind of established the model of governance that persisted uh, until the Russian Revolution. He founded a secret police who were incredibly brutal. He uh, had a very flat society that was the czar who was supreme the nobles who did everything the czar told them, and then the serf, the peasant class. So yeah, that was early Russia. And there have been attempts to democratize. So after the Napoleonic Wars in uh, 1825, there was a big push by young intelligentsia in Russia to modernize the country and to uh, create a constitutional monarchy. Uh, these were actually called the Decembrists. They tried to launch a coup in 1825 
and were slaughtered with cannon fire in the center of St. Petersburg. Then after the Russo-Japanese War, which is a very interesting and often forgotten conflict, uh, there was a revolution in 1905, again coming from the urban centers where Russian society had rapidly changed with the emergence of an educated class and uh, factory workers. And the czar of the time, Nicholas II, basically caved in to the revolutionaries in 1905 and established a constitution for a multi-party constitutional monarchy. But in 1907, he launched a counter-revolution that left the legislature, the state Duma, essentially as a stump. And so uh, obviously we all know what happened to Nicholas and his family, unfortunately. So it's interesting that you said the Russian Revolution... Oh, sorry. No, I was making an off with her head joke about the czar, not oh, cutting you okay. off. Continue. <laughs> it's funny you said the Russian Revolution. And that's actually one of the points that I like to bring up with people that most Americans aren't aware of. There were actually two Russian revolutions in 1917. Mm. The first one in February overthrew the czar and established a brief republic, which actually held elections in November. However, the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, decided that they we're not going to work within a participatory participatory democracy. And so they launched their coup d'etat in October, which started a civil war, which lasted until 1922. This was also, for a lot of scholars, myself included, this is actually the start of the Cold War. Because during the Civil War, Russia was blockaded by the foreign powers. And many of its major cities were occupied by foreign troops, including the United States, who occupied Murmansk and Vladivostok. Actually, one of the great... uh, pieces of progress with the end of the Cold War was the remains of U.S. servicemen who had been left in Murmansk were finally returned to the United States for burial. Uh, Yeah, so this, I won't take you through the whole uh, interwar and Stalinist period because that is like the pinnacle of Russian authoritarianism, the great terror. And much of that was justified by the perceived enemies of the revolution that, and also the fact that Stalin was... Uh, not a very pleasant person. <laughs> but post-war communism tried to establish communism as a working system. So Brezhnev actually established a new constitution for the Soviet Union in 1977. And in 1978, each of the member republics of the Soviet Union established their own constitutions, which mimicked the USSR. Uh, this includes Russia itself, which was known as the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic at the time. So I actually have a quote that explains the Soviet Union very well. And this is from Roderick Braithwaite, who was the last UK ambassador to the Soviet Union and first UK ambassador to the Russian Federation. Yeah, he wrote an excellent book across the Moscow River. And this is actually from a memo he wrote for the Clinton administration uh, in January of 93. Uh, the formal structure of the Soviet Union was, quote, the most democratic constitution in history, with a directly elected supreme Soviet, a government with prime ministers, all the mimics of institutions of a liberal state. It was, of course, all a sham. Real government in the Soviet Union was networking par excellence, with the bosses deciding policy and the, the Communist Party at the center of everything. I'm paraphrasing here, but he, co- sure. he goes into this, uh, he goes into this, he, he uses this quote, which I think is excellent because it really sums up the contradiction in Russia. It's from a Russian police chief in the 1830s. 
Laws are written for underlings, not for the bosses. So as a Cold War kid, one of the figures who I think like rules heavily and weighs heavily in this conversation is Gorbachev. Tell me a, a bit about Mikhail Gorbachev and like his role in like that period of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev wanted to fix the Soviet Union, but he also did not want to use violence to force people to do what they're told. Uh, Gorbachev is one of those figures who I went in having a preconceived notion who I've actually come to admire more and more as I read about him. He certainly was not perfect, and he was a devout communist, but he, he had a vision and he was willing to follow the law. So Gorbachev wanted to empower the institutions of the Soviet state to break the Communist Party's monopoly on power. In 1988, he actually uh, issued, during the 19th Party Congress, actually issued a call for elections. And these were the first elections in Russia since the 1917 ones that were going to be free and fair. Now, obviously, they weren't completely free and fair, but because the Communist Party had reserved seats and so did several other segments of society like Academy of Sciences. But uh, generally speaking, it, it, was very, it was very free. And in, you can see that by the fact that many very vocal, very prominent opposition figures won seats in the new parliament. The new parliament, by the way, which this is just where a lot of people fall apart on Russia because the Russian parliament was a beast. It was called the Congress of People's Deputies at this point. It elected 2,250 members who then in turn elected a smaller legislature called a Supreme Soviet. Uh, Soviet is just the Russian word for council. Uh, this smaller Soviet was about 542, so about the size of the U.S. Congress. And then the Supreme Soviet would elect the chairman, and of course they elected Gorbachev, who was the head of state. Uh, Yeltsin, at this point, he's president of this new entity, which calls itself the Russian Federation. Yeltsin, you know, it, Tim, Timothy Colton wrote a really great biography on him. And even Colton, who was a big fan of Yeltsin, said that Yeltsin never had a big plan. He was going off of his gut, and he was going off spurts of intuition. He was a political tactician. So when he ended the Soviet Union, he probably didn't think about the ramifications. That was uh, Gorbachev's weakness, is he always overthought things. One of Yeltsin's greatest strengths is he never thought through anything. He just acted. And, you know, he started as construction manager. He was educated in engineering, but he didn't have a really good grounding in the humanities. He might have legitimately believed that changing the blueprints of a country would, would completely alter the dynamics in that country. And at this point, people in Russia didn't really understand what democracy was other than a panacea of wealth and food and prosperity. And that's what um, Yeltsin wanted. And he had an economic advisor, Igor Gaidar, who was a disciple of the Chicago School of Economics, and at this point, the Chicago School was in ascension in the West with the Washington Consensus. So Yeltsin enacted a series of economic reforms that were later called shock therapy. The idea was we're going to shift to a market economy overnight. There'll be three months of pain, and then everyone will get rich. And that didn't happen. Actually, uh, estimates vary, but latest figures show that as a result of Yeltsin's economic policies, the GDP of Russia contracted by 43%. To give you a comparison, during the U.S. Great Depression, the GDP contracted 30%. And during World War II, when the Soviet Union was partially occupied and besieged by a massive army, 
it only lost 24% of its GDP. So a huge contraction. So this is actually one of the points that I, I, I really want to kind of pick apart here where I struggle with my own understanding is, is that, so one of the ways it's been framed to me is that democracy was tried in Russia and during the Yeltsin years and basically it failed and then Putin stepped in. But the other version of the story goes, democracy was tried in Russia during a period of like absolute economic like tumult. And then basically people turned on both, both democracy and on the economic regime. Uh, which one of those do you think is the more accurate description? Well, I think they both have elements of truth in them. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Allison Edwards, actually summarized it very nicely. She was talking about something else, but uh, what she said was, Putin lives in the house that Yeltsin built. So the economic tumult did not help uh, democracy, but what really undid democracy in Russia was Yeltsin's leadership style and Yeltsin's lack of respect for institutions. Yeltsin was, was willing to destroy a 75-year-old nation for political advantage. Uh, the embryonic institutions of government in Russia didn't stand a chance. So at this point in our story, Russia's functioning under, under a very bizarre state of affairs. It's still under the 1977 constitution, which has been amended multiple times to create a functioning legislature, a constitutional court, and a presidency. So very similar to the U.S. Constitution. And that was by design. A lot of the Russian liberals were huge fans of the U.S. federal system. Actually, in the 1990s, a copy of the Federalist Papers was very popular. It was being passed around uh, by various academics and very widely read and being printed in newspapers. Hmm. So what happened, though, was... Yeltsin had been the leader of the Congress, right? And, but then he created this office of the presidency for himself, and then he stepped into it, and he named his successor, a guy named Ruslan Kozbolotov, who, he was, he was a very good politician. He was actually an economist of Marxist economy, uh, but he was not perhaps the most genteel or easy to get along with person. Actually, a former U.S. ambassador, or, I'm sorry, a former U.K. ambassador called him a snake is how he described him. And then uh, Yeltsin also named a vice president. Now, Russia doesn't have a vice president anymore, largely because of this is what happens. He named a running mate who balanced out the ticket, a man named uh, Alexander Rutskoy, who was a fighter pilot who'd served in Afghanistan, who was, uh, he was awarded hero of the Soviet Union. He was shot down twice. Um, so he, he was there to bolster the nationalist and military vote, but he, he did not have a lot of intellectual breadth and uh, had a reputation of being an excellent fighter pilot, but a very poor leader. So Yeltsin immediately, as, as the economy degrades, Yeltsin begins to clash with the Congress and with his own vice president. Uh, Rutskoy was very angry with Yeltsin because he thought he was beggaring Russia and prostrates, prostrating it before the West. It didn't help that a lot of the economic advice and a lot of the economic aid the U.S. was giving was not coming directly from the U.S. It was coming from the IMF. It was heavily conditional on Russia following very strict economic guidelines, which were causing inflation, which were causing deindustrialization. Neoliberalism. Yeah, low inflation. Yeah, exactly. Public services. Very much neoliberalism. Of course, 
no economic model is perfect. And theoretically, neoliberalism, people are supposed to create wealth and then reinvest in the country. What was happening was people were looting the wealth and hiding it overseas. Uh, and so you had cases where factories were literally being dismantled in front of their workers because the machinery was worth more money uh, being exported overseas and the workers were left with nothing. So Kozbolotov begins to rally opposition to Yeltsin. At this point, Yeltsin also, he'd come to power supported by the intelligentsia, the Democrats. He abandons them in December of uh, 92, when there's an attempt to impeach him and makes common cause with a group called Civic Union, who represented the Red Directors. These are the guys who later became the oligarchs. They had been the economic directors uh, under the Soviet Union. And he moderates his policies, but the situation just continues to get more and more intractable. Yel I, I will say here, it's important to note, Yeltsin had an opportunity after he ended the Soviet Union to call for new elections and call for a new constitution for a new Russia, which would establish a new political mandate and a new political framework. He didn't do that. And I think it was because it maximized his, his flexibility, still operating under this amended Soviet system. But he and the Congress increasingly debate the need for this new constitution. Yeltsin says, okay, we need a new constitution. Here's mine. And it's pretty much the constitution we know today which is described as a super presidential system. The president can rule by decree. Uh, the president can dissolve the parliament at will. The parliament can impeach the president, but only with two thirds majority in both houses. Uh, and, the comp and, the, and the parliament is elected in a split, like the German system, in a split of first past the post single member constituencies and, and half party list, which makes it really easy for, which makes it either really hard to establish a majority or really easy to establish a supermajority, depending on how you want to manage it. And so this eventually leads to violence. By his own admission in 93, Yeltsin says that he thought the Congress had gone crazy and it was time to just end it. So in total violation of the Constitution, when they, when they established the presidency, they wrote into the Constitution at the time, the president cannot in the parliament. He cannot interfere with the parliament. Yeltsin does that. September 21st, 1993, issues a decree that the parliament, the Russian Congress People's Deputies, is dissolved. In December, we will have new elections under a new constitution, which we'll be voting on at the same time. Uh, the, the constitutional court says, no, you can't do that. It's unconstitutional. And the uh, Congress impeaches him. But at this point, we see that Yeltsin really understood the mechanisms of political power in Russia better than the Congress did. Even though the Congress was legally in the right, Yeltsin was the one who had the power. Uh, the Russians actually have a word for it. It's called Vlast. Yeltsin had tamed the Vlast. He had the security services and the ministers on his side. He had, because of the red, his alliance with the Red Directors, he, had, he did have support in the parliament, not enough to stop his impeachment. But he essentially made a deal. He said, okay, Anyone who wants to back down now will keep their parliamentary privileges until the new election and can run for the new parliament. And so a standoff ensues where the same parliament building Yeltsin defended during the coup is now being defended by his opposition. Barricades go up, uh, the Moscow police surround the building, and the Orthodox Church tries to mediate a settlement. But like I said, Rutskoy was a soldier and not a particularly 
talented strategist. Eventually, things just get out of hand, and a mob of his supporters try to storm the television station, at which point Yeltsin asked the military to step in, which they didn't want to do because they had been blamed for political violence in the past. They didn't want to be uh, shackled with this and be blamed by Yeltsin later for bloodshed. So Yeltsin actually issued a written order that authorized the military to move in and restore order. And this is where you get the image that I call it the third tank because the 90s is kind of the, the period of the tank. You have 89 Tiananmen Square, 91, the tanks in front of the Kremlin. The third image that people don't really think about very much, uh, but is just as powerful to me, are T, uh, T-89 battle, T-90 battle tanks on the bridge outside the Russian parliament building, firing shell after shell into the building. So the army, just like the Decembrists, 100 years before, laid siege to the parliament and its supporters, and they gave up within a couple of hours. 150 people were killed. 450 people were wounded, including an American Marine uh, who was standing guard at the U.S. Embassy, which was across the street from the building being fired on. And that, that was that. Uh, Yeltsin had his new constitution. It, it was passed by a referendum in December, but it's interesting because Yeltsin lost those, elect, those parliamentary elections. The party he supported lost, but his constitution still passed. So there's some question as to the validity of it. And that is the system that Putin came to power under and that he refined. So, and I'll say one more thing here about Yeltsin. Um, when it came time to choose a successor, he was old, he was infirm, he had many different choices, and he chose Putin because many of his closest associates told him, Putin is loyal as a dog. He will not go after you or your family. Because at this point, his daughters especially had become well-known for being very corrupt. Mm. And, you know, so to his credit, Putin never did go after Yeltsin. He was under criminal investigation when he left office. Those were almost immediately dropped. And he became one of the first Russian leaders in a long time to die out of office without uh, without being persecuted criminally or politically. And uh, that that's where Putin enters the story. So that's a perfect spot. Let's take a break there because that's where I want to pick up. I want to pick up with Putin inheriting the regime and what he's done with the democracy in Russia since then. So we will be back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 show Nerd Farmer. And this episode is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. If we've learned anything from the last two years, is that the future is unpredictable, which is why education and higher education in particular should equip students with the ability to be flexible and innovate. Students should leave college with the determination needed to understand a problem and explore solutions. And they need a spark of creativity so they can find new ways to turn their smart ideas into reality. But these traits and skills can only be set into motion by one thing, transformative care. Pacific Lutheran University is a small private college where caring means more than kindness and consideration. It means bold commitment to expanding well-being, opportunities, and justice. And just let me add an amen to that. Caring helps us all to question paradigms and draw new connections in pursuit of truth, constantly challenging ourselves and the world we love to be better for our neighbors, those down the street, and thousands of miles away. PLU is more than a campus full of individuals pursuing their dreams. It's a community of seekers, trailblazers, creators, and reformers who know we can accomplish more together than apart. To apply, schedule a campus visit, or learn more about PLU's undergrad and graduate programs, 
please visit plu.edu. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today. Channel 253 is a podcast network that this show belongs to. We are elevating voices, giving perspectives, telling stories, and serving the community of Tacoma and beyond. If you enjoy what you're listening to, I ask you to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. Your membership dollars help support our work and also grant you access to some memorly benefits, including our member-only Slack channel and also uh, Doug's show Off the Record, which is a show of conversations with hosts on the network. Our member Slack right now is having a robust conversation about the mayoral race in Tacoma and also about the article that was published in the News Tribune on Wednesday by Allison Needles about Angela Connolly and her bringing basically the Safe Seattle Coalition to Tacoma. Uh, there's a fascinating conversation about some motivations there and about speculation about what Connolly is trying to do politically, knowing that her and her husband have a habit of running for office and using their money uh, in order to try to win races. And so if you want that kind of insider conversation about Tacoma, join Channel 253. All right, Jeff, we're back to you. So where you left off is exactly where I want to pick up at. Um, we were talking about Putin and how I understand things is that he inherits a democratic regime that is economically on the ropes. And so help me understand, help me get smarter about how did he consolidate power in the early years of his rule? Well, it's, first of all, anyone who's interested in Vladimir Putin, there's two books I highly recommend. Putin's People, which is not perfect, but is an excellent uh, breakdown of the people who surround him and uh, Mr. Putin by Fiona Hill, which is an excellent study of the man himself. So to answer your question, Nate, Putin was a, a, a very interesting figure. He uh, was a former KGB officer. That's true. A lot of people tend to exaggerate his role in the KGB. The KGB was a huge organization. It had over 500,000 uh, staff. Um, but he was, he was an excellent chameleon. He was good at blending in to different organizations and being a good foot soldier when he needed to, but also being very decisive. He, after the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, he went to work for his old mentor and law professor, Anatoly Sobachak, who became mayor of St. Petersburg, where Putin essentially became the deputy mayor dealing with international affairs and gradually rose through the ranks of the bureaucracy. He became the head of the FSB, which succeeded the KGB as the domestic security office. When he got into power, he had a ready-made coalition of people who were willing to work with him. Uh, these are called the Siloviki, the security men. A lot of them were former KGB or former military who either went into private sector or stayed in state service at, uh, at the end of the Soviet Union. And Putin was very good about using the administrative state the power of the state to roll over anyone who got in his way. Um, Mikhail uh, Khabarovsky, uh, the head of UCOS Oil, is probably the most prominent uh, case of this. Uh, he actually had challenged Putin directly because what you need to understand is in Yeltsin's later years, he really was not all with it. And the oligarchs who had greatly benefited from looting Russia's natural resources and its economy essentially ran the country. What Putin demonstrated to the oligarchs with the Yukos affair was that he's willing to let them keep their wealth and their lives, but he will not, but the state is supreme and it is no longer him kissing their ring, they're kissing his. So that was on the Vlast. 
keeping the institutions of power and directing them towards people who had the power to challenge him. He also was much better about electoral politics than Yeltsin. He helped to facilitate the uh, union of two political parties, Fatherland and Union, into United Russia in 2001. And this became his flagship party. This was different than uh, Yeltsin. He never really had a political party. And United Russia was successful electoral, electorally initially because it actually built a political consensus that Russians could get behind. We're not going to go back to a command economy. Uh, we're going to continue to be a free market, but we're going to be a strong and proud nation, and we're going to have an assertive foreign policy. Uh, so he was able to really benefit from that electorally. And the other thing he did was he ended the uh, war in Chechnya, which at this point was causing a great deal of insecurity in Russia. My research really doesn't cover it, but that's definitely something that affected how people felt because there were very frequent terrorist attacks in Russia. Um, and so, yeah, he was able to consolidate to his control using the methods Yeltsin had used, but perfecting them and using the constitution as it was written, basically as a tool to solidify his own power. So who were the electoral coalitions that were his like broadest base of support? So that's the interesting thing about Russian politics is electorally, it's political parties and or it's supposed political parties are all over the map. Uh, when I say United Russia was an electoral coalition, what I mean is it brought together a wide variety of interest groups. It brought together local political bosses who were pragmatists, who wanted to get more money out of the central government and were willing to support a party that would do that. It brought together nationalists who wanted a strong Russian military and a strong foreign policy. It brought together businessmen who saw the importance of a strong relationship with the state. The opposition at this point, by the way, is something that we should think about because the, op the main opposition parties in Russia were the Communist Party led by Giddy Zu uh, um, Zuganov, sorry, Gennady Zuganov, who is a, even at this point was starting to look more like a dinosaur. And uh, the misnamed Liberal Democratic Party, which is a haven for xenophobes and neo-Nazis uh, <laughs> by Vladimir Zirinovsky. So these are the two largest opposition parties. So there was room for an electoral coalition and uh, Putin was able to build it. And he was able to build it successfully using this party, uh, this party machine style of management. Again, drawing on his experience in the USSR and on uh, the precedent set by Yeltsin. So that's how he came to power and what he did in the early years of his regime. Uh, what are some of the reforms that he's pushed through that have altered Russian democracy since? Yeah. So Putin's actually made a number of changes to the electoral system. Uh, they tried to get rid of the split parliament elections briefly, but then United Russia actually did very badly in the elections. So they put that back in. Uh, they, they changed the party list requirements. Uh, I think it's now 5%, a 5% threshold for someone to get into uh, for a party to get in, to get awarded seats in parliament, you have to pass a five percent threshold. So, so let, let me explain briefly why this is a, an excellent tool for for a supermajority system like United Russia. So, you have a Duma that's got five hundred members; two hundred and fifty are elected from these single member constituencies. You don't need to get a majority in those constituencies; you just need to get a plurality 
and the opposition is so fragmented and divided and elector it's so easy to monkey with the electoral politics in St. Petersburg there was there was this independent candidate and then suddenly there were three other guys who had the same name and looked similar to him hmm. not that the voters are going to find that confusing at all uh, and then for the party list you know again um there's there's probably some more electoral tampering going on here but at the same time it, it's the whole country is voting for these lists and if you look at people tend to vote for opposition parties uh, on local issues because opposition parties being smaller typically have to be more responsive to voters and more more active advocates with the Kremlin or with the higher authorities. Nationwide, they tend to prefer United Russia. And there's also the soft influence. Uh, state-owned enterprises are, or enterprises where the state has a significant state in, employees are encouraged to vote for one party or another. Uh, people often vote multiple times. The military all vote, uh, basically, for the president's party. And then Putin also had some, some, some legitimate popularity because after years of the ailing, anemic Yeltsin, who, frankly, you know, was frequently appearing drunk in public and made people blame for making Russia look weak, Putin was good at crafting his image and appealing to a wide swath of Russians. So we, we all make fun of the horseback riding shirtless, but I'll tell you, that's an excellent example of how he's able to appeal to multiple voter demographics. He's appealing to uh, agrarian, uh, eco, pro, uh, pro-ecosystem people. The Greens are actually have a pretty strong presence in Russia or people who have green political leanings or uh, green inclinations because of the environmental damage wrought by Soviet industrialization. Putin has uh, many times actively campaigned or actively done select photo ops, you know, in favor of environmental presentation. And then, of course, as one of my Russian professors pointed out, uh, that picture is also very popular with female voters who tend to, women in Russia live longer and vote more frequently than their uh, husbands. (laughs) So... Yeah, he, he's he's very good at his messaging. Um, but again, though, you know, he's not some sort of Bond villain. He's he's also good at balancing the various interest groups against each other, and that's something that's become difficult uh, after Ukraine. Yeah, something that I've seen and talked about in my class is the extent to which uh, Putin also basically runs against the gay and trans community as kind of an appeal to conservative voters with who are like very religious and orthodox. Something mm-hmm. else you've seen happen? Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is something that I've been very upset by because when I was in St. Petersburg in 2012, there was a open uh, gay community. There were even gay nightclubs. That's not the case anymore. And it's exactly what you said because uh, conservatism, religious orthodoxy, nationalism in Russia have long all been intertwined and Putin's willing to pander to that. Hmm. Um, and unfortunately, gays and uh, transgender people are, do not rec- represent a significant political uh, group of voters, you know. I want to zoom out a bit from like Russian politics and look more at larger society. What are some of the other mechanisms that Putin is utilizing to like maintain his legitimacy and authority? Like, I, I think we all know about like state-owned media operations, but are there other are there other factors that he's use, he uses to like strengthen his hand? Uh, yeah, and a lot of it is just blatant bribery. So there were reforms to the constitution passed in July of 2020 which I hope we'll have time to go into because I'm very interested in those. But along with the changes to the government structure, there's a laundry list of social programs, uh, increasing pensions, um, 
you know, a big, bigger payments uh, for mm-hmm. employees. So essentially just making sure people's income stay up. So that's why Putin's probably biggest political challenge is not international isolation brought by sanctions. It's the falling income of average Russians because the Russian economy never diversified away from commodities. Uh, oil was long its most profitable export. It still is. Agriculture is becoming increasingly profitable. But really, Russia exports oil, guns, and wheat. It doesn't, and because Putin has done nothing to address the corruption, because corruption is one of the tools that keeps him in power. Uh, But because of that corruption, people just, you know, they don't want to start a company in Russia because someone will come along and take it and take it apart and sell it for, for pieces and they won't get a payout. That's actually how Navalny got his start was because he was frustrated with the corruption. I have just something I can't not get my head around is the the way in which we view Russia as being this mighty mighty state, but then you're talking about how it's a commodity exporter. Um, one of the points that like stuck out to me when I was uh, visiting Malaysia a few summers ago is is that like Malaysia is wealthier per capita than Russia, and so. On one hand, we know that like Yeltsin cripples the economy. We know that Putin is credited with improving the economy, but still the typical Russian isn't doing better than their European neighbors. And so how are there economic pressures on the Putin regime, on the Putin government uh, from the people in Russia? Shorter answer is yes. And it's worth remembering that 75 years of communist mismanagement is really what broke the economy. Yeltsin just finished it off. Uh, the, the big so when I lived in Russia, you know, St. Petersburg is a fairly wealthy city and it's a fairly high standard of living. But yeah, you definitely notice there's a lower standard of living for most people. And a big, you know, a big a big part of the problem is the informal economy because of the corruption, because of the Byzantine bureaucracy. A lot of stuff like taxes are not even reported. So one initiative Putin has recently has started to do in recent years is to promote more technocrats into positions of power. So the current pre, uh, the current prime minister Mishukin is interesting because he actually got a reputation as being a very effective manager of the Russian tax bureau because he was actually able to bring tax compliance up to something like seventy percent, where previously it had been something like twenty percent, like Greece. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of economic pressures like that. And, and there's been various attempts to kind of compel diversification because Russia's, one of Russia's kind of like core identities is its technology, technological innovation. You know, these are the people who Sputnik and Gagarin, you know, who challenged, uh, the United States in the nuclear arms race, but there's not a lot of money for that kind of investment. And one thing that sanctions have continuously done is they have made the pie of largesse. It's a combination of sanctions and um, low oil prices and low gas prices. The, they've made the pie that the various factions are taking pieces from smaller and smaller. And that started more competition and elite infighting. And it's made it more difficult for Putin to manage day to day. 
You mentioned the constitutional reforms that are pushed through in June 2020, and that's an area I want to touch on before we finish this conversation. Uh, for folks who are not familiar, basically in the midst of COVID, Russia held a referendum where they pushed through a ton of reforms to their constitution, one of which was resetting term limits and granting Putin the right to be in office now until either 2032 or 2036, one or the other. Um, what were some of the other reforms that were pushed through in that referendum? So this is actually something that uh, is often missed in the discussion about the reforms and that I found quite interesting. This is the first constitution since 1905 to hand authority to the legislature instead of taking it away. So the state Duma now uh, has the right to not just choose the prime minister, who's still nominated by the president, but it mm -hmm. also has the right to elect various domestic economic ministers. Uh, my view on this, and I've written about this, I think in my transformative authoritarianism you referenced, is that Putin knows he's not immoral and he's preparing his exit plan. He knows Russia. He, one of the arguments Fiona Hill makes in her book, Mr. Putin, which I very much agree with, at his core, Putin sees himself as a Russian patriot who wants to leave Russia in a stable position after he's no longer able to exercise power. And essentially what this constitution does is it creates a balance between different institutions, between the Duma, between the presidency, and between this new group called the state council. The state council is kind of like a third house of parliament. All the regional governors will have seats on it, and they'll speak directly with the president. This is a way to get the president's ear directly on local issues uh, and to kind of cut out the middlemen. The parliament now has primacy on domestic and economic issues. The president has primacy on foreign affairs and state security. So it's, a cre it's essentially creating a balanced system where no single individual is going to have supreme power. In theory, again, you know, this goes back to what you're talking about earlier of what's on paper versus what's in reality. And the fear, of course, is that after Putin goes, there'll be a power struggle to replace him, and that could potentially turn violent. But also there's, there's a question of who could potentially replace him. Many of the people who are in his inner circle, who are also quite popular, like Sergei Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, is only a year or two younger than Putin. So by 2036, you know, he's, he's going to be around the same age. Dmitry Medvedev, who served briefly as president, uh, was often thought of to be Putin's successor because he's, he's quite a bit younger. He's about uh, two decades younger, I think. But, uh, you know, he's very unpopular because of the exposure of corruption. And this is, I, I'd like to briefly mix, uh, mention Alexei Navalny because he gets a lot of coverage. In, sure. in the West. And, there's a, and there's an excellent book by Ben Noble from uh, University College London and some co-authors whose names I'm blanking on. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, called Navalny, which explains this. Navalny, you know, obviously he's an activist. But he's a, he's a manifestation of the frustration of post-Soviet Russians who, yes, they want a strong state, but they want a state that works. They want an economy that works. They're tired of the capriciousness of the elite and that, uh, that attitude that many in the elite have that they are above the law. So Russia's facing a myriad of challenges in its future. We're going to see how it turns out. Uh, 2036 is actually, yeah, that's the last year Putin supposedly can stay in office, although he'll be in his 80s by then. And that will be the first election of um, both the parliament and the presidency at the same time. 
since the last one. So, because they elect their, they elect them on alternating years usually, but 2036, it will line up. So I already have my calendar circled and we'll see how things go. <laughs> I think my exit question here is, so we're talking about how Russia established a democracy. Russia had an economic calamity. Russia lost its democracy. Russia is now largely an authoritarian state with a procedural democracy, like democracy in name only, but then is trending toward democratic reforms with kind of a, we don't know what happens at the end of the current regime. And yeah. so I guess my, my question for you is, what lessons are there for people in the US or elsewhere about what's happened in Russia? Like, what can we learn from looking at this? I think the US learned a very sharp lesson very recently about democracy, and that is institutions and the constitution and the law as written must take primacy over political expediency. Uh, one thing that frustrates me greatly in my research is that I laid out how Yeltsin destroyed those institutions that were a check on his power. What I didn't get into, because it's a different conversation, is he was fully supported by the United States when he did it. Because, And this is still the narrative you find in D.C. The Congress at that time in Russia was an organization dominated by, by, nostalgia, by nostalgic nationalists who were active obstructionists, many of whom subscribed to uh, far-right political ideologies. Of course, you know, that was in the 90s. And if we look at the U.S. Congress these days, and we're going to say a uh, institution is illegitimate because it's obstructionist and full of political wingnuts, well, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. But yeah, I definitely think that the importance lies in the institutions and adherence to the law, both in its spirit and as it is written. That's Fascinating. Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and making time for this. Uh, in particular, this is my first time with Doug. We're three continents right now. You're in London, Doug's in Tacoma, and I'm here in Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi. Uh, if people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Uh, I tweet. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I believe it's at Jeff Hahn. And then also, if you Google uh, Jeff Hahn LSE, uh, you'll find my webpage with uh, all of my li links to all of my articles and my Twitter account. Awesome. Uh, Jeff, thanks for coming to the show. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me. Wakanda for y'all. Wash your hands, be vaccinated, wear a mask indoors, and convict the police to kill Manuel's. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at... Nope, damn it. I fucked it up. There it is. Take two. Take three, actually. Oh, man. Take four. Take four. Take four. Take four. No, oh, God. Okay, Doug, take five. I swear this time. Actually, okay, take five. We're, we've got this. I believe in me. Oh, take it. <laughs> Six. <laughs> All right. I've got this. Oh, okay, Doug, this is, the, this is my worst. This is my worst. We're, we're going to get this. We're going to get this. This could be a long blooper reel. <laughs> I put them all on. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.